Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Morning everyone, welcome to our first 2022 episode of Anthropotamus. Today we will be discussing racism, not race, answers to frequently asked questions. Uh, We're here with the authors, Dr. Joseph Graves and Dr. Alan Goodman. Thank you both of you for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you for having us. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So before we get into the book, I always like to get to know a little bit more about our authors. So Dr. Graves, you've, you're an evolutionary biologist with the North Carolina Agriculture and Technical State University, and you're Research is always focused on evolution. Um, but as your career went on, you st- it seems that you started to focus more on race. Can you tell the listeners why you chose your to build your career around that, that topic? I, I did not choose to build my career around race. In fact, I would have preferred not to ever write anything about race. The simple fact of the matter of being the first African-American to ever earn a PhD in my field, I had no choice. Now, I, now I, I tell the story of how I came to do work on race and racism in my forthcoming book entitled um, A Voice in the Wilderness that's gonna be published by BASIC in the fall of 2022. But at the end of the day, you know, being a black person in America, a scientist, I really didn't have much of a choice but to focus on racism because racism was, was the entire center of my experience um, from cradle, and I'm still alive, so I won't say cradle to grave. Dr. Goodman, so your early research, uh, now you're a biological anthropologist at Hampshire College. Your research um, initially was focused around paleopathology and teeth. Um, how is it that you transitioned into race? Yeah, that that's an interesting story, I hope, or I think. Um, it's different from Joe's, but we share a sense of you know maybe being drawn to drawn is maybe a word I can use to studying race and racism. Um, I when I was a undergrad, I took a couple courses in which I learned in quotes that biological race is a myth. This is way back in the early 1970s, and. Um, I taught that, and, but I went on to do other things, as you mentioned, working in paleoepidemiology and doing contemporary nutrition, under nutrition studies and things of that sort. And then somewhere in the early 1990s, I looked around and realized that even though I thought race was a biological myth and that would go away naively, it hadn't. And even in my profession of biological anthropology, there were just still a lot of people believing in the myth of race as biology. And um, one of the key moments was that I went to a meeting in the American Association of Physical Anthropologists, now called Biological Anthropologists, and this was in North Carolina, not far from Joe at Raleigh-Durham. And I realized that of the number of biological anthropologists of color, which I think I could count on one hand, hardly none of them were at that meeting. And so it was a solidly white meeting, and the only people, for the most part, that were talking about race and racism were the few faculty, um, my colleagues of color. So 
I just immersed myself in the history and kind of genetics and physical anthropology of human variation and realized that this was something I had to start writing about and teaching about. And so, um, and so yeah, here we are today, 25, 30 years later. So to start this off, in your first chapter, you bring up the concept of folk idea. So even though I major in biological anthropology, this is actually a new idea for me. And I was wondering if you could explain what folk idea is to our listeners and how it eventually transitioned into this concept of racism. Yeah, I, if it's okay, I'll take this one to say, you know, that we've, I think many, many cultures have ideas about like, you know, self and other in group, out group. You know, some people use the term xenophobia as fear of others, but in truth, there's a lot of love of others and intermingling that goes on as well, a lot of exotification. Um, and clearly in Europe in the middle century, mid, the mid mid centuries, the you know, 13, 1400s during the Crusades earlier, um, there's an idea of otherness that sometimes it was tied to religion and custom and language and then eventually turned to biology. And so what we really mean by a folk idea is an idea that's sort of in the culture. It's part of the culture about, about kind of in-group and out-group. And frequently thinking of the out-groups are barbarians or less than or something of that sort. How that be evolved into the idea of race, I'll just say very, very quickly in quick steps is that, or quick steps that took a couple centuries, but explaining it quickly, um, is that eventually race became law. Um, and this very much happened in the United States, um, in Virginia, for example, in um, that all Africans were lumped together as one group and were separated from indentured Europeans as different, and then laws came into play around 1680 to disallow any marriage or any consorting between um, individuals, enslaved Africans and indentured Europeans or other Europeans, and of course, uh, there's still plenty of rapes that went on uh, of European men with African women. Um, and then, you know, there were the idea of subspecies or types of varieties was around in biology, and then that got taken over into into the science of humans to uh, go from types to eventually to races through the 1700s and 1800s, starting with folks like Linnaeus. Joe might want to add a couple words to that because this is part of his expertise. I mean. Yeah, thank you, Alan. Um, one of the things I want to point out about Linnaeus is, as Alan has uh, so adequately explained, um, you know, he was a, a naturalist who, who never left um, Sweden. So he relied on the accounts of travelers, and particularly travelers in the colonial world, the world that was being colonized, for his ideas about the people who lived there. And so he came up with a hierarchical ranking of the varieties of humankind. Um, and of course, Africans were at the lowest rung of this hierarchical ranking, and Europeans were at the top. So it's really important to recognize that 
you know, from the point of view of what you would consider modern biological anthropology, Linnaeus didn't utilize any of the tools or even the intellectual methods that we use today to come to his conclusions. I mean, they were basically anecdotal. And, uh, of course, he came to the conclusions that Europeans were better than others. And there were a whole bunch of people in this time period, in addition to Linnaeus, um, and they didn't come to the same conclusion. So the idea that right away um, biological race was, you know, put together in some firm foundation isn't correct. And the idea that all of the European naturalists agreed on the attributes of the supposed varieties of humankind isn't correct. But what happens, and, and we talk about this in the book, is that in the 19th century, things do move towards a consensus, and it's a white supremacist consensus of European superiority and African inferiority that is directly related with the institution of chattel slavery. Yeah, and I'll just, if I can add to that, you know, one would have thought that the early scientists, you know, not having much information and being totally based on hearsay and things of that, so it would be the most subjective and the most biased and have the, the, the most flawed science. But, you know, in my mind, it's really around the debate around slavery and even the debate around Jim Crow that you get the most virulent you know, scientific racism showing through. During the course of researching for this project and writing this project together, is there anything in particular that um, stood out to you or that you both learned that you didn't expect? Silence. Um, <laughs> I, think, I, I wonder if there was anything that I, I'm having a hard time thinking that there was anything we, I mean, after... 30, 40 years of each of us, you know, of doing, you know, being involved in this literature and un nothing surprises me. I mean, things just are, you know, crazy upon crazy with race science. Um, Joe certainly taught me a lot of things in writing this book, um, you know, that or he solidified ideas that I had. But I don't think, I don't know, Joe, I don't think I learned much. No, I don't think we learned anything new. It's just, you know, it's hard to be surprised by just the, the immoral uh, perpetration of race science through the, the existence of the United States and and you know the colonization of the world. I mean, the, the the atrocities that have been pulled off in the name of race science um, are momentous, and and it's you know we, no, we didn't learn anything new. I think what we wanted to do was to help people who don't know this, and that's by the way the vast majority of people in the world, not just in the United States. Because, you know, as we point, pointed out, and as I pointed out in my, my first book, The Emperor's New Clothes, I mean, it, it races out there stark naked, but everybody looks the other way and comments on how beautiful the set of clothes are and ignores the, its murderous um, implications and, and actions. Um, so if anything, it, it was more of 
of us putting together a message to try to stop us before we go over the cliff, before there's no return. And I have to tell you, I think Al and I both agree we're very close to that cliff. So really what you're saying is that this um, this book here is very much a, uh, a broadcast or a billboard to the public about this information. Yeah, and one thing that it has that we, we didn't have in our previous works is we, we put a lot of the new genomic science in the book. And, and that's because this, this work you know, hadn't been done. The tools to understand the human genome hadn't been invented yet. But of course, everything that resulted from those genomic examinations of human biological variation, you know, reified everything that Alan and I have been saying for 30 years. But there are people out there who are claiming the exact opposite. So we had to take on some of those voices in the book. So while we didn't learn anything new, we, we added new sources of information and, and we examined you know, new claims uh, based upon racial ideology that, that needed to be examined and, and brought into the daylight. Yeah, can I, the book itself is broken down into chapters uh, thematically, but it, it, the core of the book is over 100 questions, frequently asked questions and answers. And these range from really basic questions, uh, fundamental questions of what race is, what race isn't, about what, is, what do we mean by the structure of genetic variation and why it's non-racial, um, what is a social construct, into the nitty-gritty of all of those myths about that we've heard and you know that are in the air, in the smog, so to speak, about about race and racial, so-called racial differences from healthcare to um, athletic performance to even looking at incarceration and intelligence. A couple reviewers have said that, you know, instead of a billboard, had said that this is really a tool for individuals to dip into when, you know, you hear, you know, somebody spouting some some obvious thing about racial differences that, you know, there's a good chance we've addressed that in this book and one of our questions and kind of try to dispel that myth. So, um, I wanted to get your, your perception on something. So you mentioned Wilkerson's book, Cast, and you only briefly mention it in the book. Um, Personally, I actually had a hard time um, reading that book. I, I don't even think I finished it, but <laughs> I wanted, um, since you mentioned it briefly in the book, I was hoping you'd be able to give your own perception on labeling race as a caste. Well, um, I, I, I felt like it was a exceptional book. Um, her prior book, on um, I'm I'm skip forgetting the name for the moment, but it'll come to me. Um, is an amazing book about the um, migration of uh, blacks from the south or southeast into northern cities and even to California. Um, so she's a, a beautiful writer and really well respected. Um, this idea that 
racial formation in the United States is a caste or caste-like is not new, and she does cite literatures going back to the 1930s and 40s. Um, but I, I think caste is a little bit different from race, and she even goes back and forth and um, saying sometimes race is sort of the superstructure and then caste is the structure, and then kind of really talks about them as being one and the same. Um, you know, I see caste as a combination of class and race, and um, so it's a, it's really different, and in the same way that racism is maybe different in different different cultures, I think it's really hard to just simply use a word and say, okay, this translates from one place to another. I think the work that she does do that's useful is showing um, that caste in India has been a long, around for so long. It's sort of almost hardwired into Indian uh, social and cultural structure. And in the same way, I would say race is kind of become, it's become part of the fabric, the social construct or contract rather of the United States. So while reading this book, I couldn't help but um, think back to another book I'd been reading, Sapiens. Uh, I don't know if you've actually read through that one, but it talks very. It talks a, a lot about um, social constructs in particular, and how we use them to function as a large-scale society. When you mention casteism, and this is what brought it to mind, the casteism they uh, they talk about in that book, the casteisms of India and how the um, the whole thing started and how it's so persistently been incorporated into the uh, the country's culture that even today with um, most of the government really trying to, to dig those traditions out, how much of a chance is there of actually digging this racial construct out of our culture? We address that in the, the final chapter of the book. Because what we wanted to do was to provide people with a way forward, because both Alan and I believe that, that we can not go over the cliff. But the simple fact of the matter is we have to stop rewarding racist behavior uh, by dismantling racist institutions. And so, you know, there's going to be a lot of pushback against that because there are people who have historically benefited from racist structures in American society. They don't want to give up those privileges. Uh, a lot of those people stormed the Capitol um, last year around this time, led by former President Donald Trump to maintain the structures of white supremacy in the United States. It wasn't just about maintaining Trump in office because Trump in office was also white supremacy in office. And so we're at a, a point where, you know, people of good faith who will really want to adhere to this, the, the, the spirit of what, you know, our Declaration of Independence and Constitution was supposed to be about, you know, giving everyone equal opportunity um, without regard, you know, to religion or creed. And, you know, I, of course, obviously now we would put socially defined race in, in that sentence, you know, we, we have to take action. We cannot sit back and let things go as they've been, because if we do, 
we will lose the thin veneer of democracy that remains in the society, and that could have global consequences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I definitely agree with you. This is, it, it's not something that we can, con- well, you know, I, I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but um, there's a quote, uh, the center cannot hold. I think that reflects very well in this situation. Yeah, and totally. And I, I would add that the work that needs to be done is among individuals who think they benefit uh, subconsciously or consciously from a racial hierarchy, a race class hierarchy. And um, that sort of zero sum logic just has to go. You know, it, in this world in which we're facing, you know, so many existential crises COVID, global warming, crisis in democracy, increasing economic inequality that not just is by race, but is also by class, is that we have to get at the root cause. And, you know, things like race based capitalism are at the root of it. But, you know, it's also this zero sum logic that was, is very Trumpian. And I think that we have to realize that, yeah, in the, sh- in the short run, some whites might benefit from racism, you know, but most whites do not. And in the long run, maybe none of us will, because as Joe says, you know, we'll go, we'll go all go over the cliff. Maybe people of color, for example, who will be refu- climate refugees will communities of color, they may be first, but we will all eventually go after the, over that cliff unless we get rid of this you know, extreme bitterness and othering that racism is at the heart of. So I actually had a, a not a question, but a, a comment. Uh, in one of your chapters, you bring up uh, COVID. So, but I, I'm, I find it interesting that you mentioned the impact of COVID-19 on socially defined race and ethnicity. And I especially find this interesting because when the pandemic first hit, I remember driving through, you know, I currently live in Sacramento. I remember driving through, you know, low income neighborhoods and it, it was a month into the pandemic and people were having large barbecues in front of the front yard. And I'm thinking like, aren't we supposed to be staying in our own homes? And then at my previous job, it's, it's a warehouse setting you probably have this warehouse with 200 plus people working in it and 80% of the people wouldn't even bother wearing masks. And then you have my acquaintances and friends who I guess would be considered upper class taking extra precautions to quarantine, work from home. And it was almost as if the privilege of financial security and the ability from work from home allowed the ability to care about the pandemic. Well, I think it's even deeper than that. I mean, I wrote a piece for Science for the People magazine very early into the pandemic called Their Money, Our Lives. Um, simple fact of the matter is you know, when we talk about racial capitalism, there are things that racial capitalism gives to certain populations that it doesn't give to others. And one of those things is education. And in this society, education and high income jobs are associated with each other. So the ability to work from home, like I could do because I was a professor, and you can be absolutely sure that's what I did, 
to prevent myself from coming down with COVID um, before vaccines were available, that's because of my understanding of the danger of the transmission of viruses, which a lot of poor people, working class people didn't have. And at the same time, those working class people live in the conditions that are absolutely essential for viruses to transmit themselves in high density, uh, using public transportation, um, inability to stay home from work. I mean, there's a story about the meatpacking plants um, in the Midwest where Latino workers um, had to go to work. And so they took massive doses of Tylenol and ibuprofen to bring down their fevers so that they could get in the factory, get on the floor, and then pass out from COVID. And so the, the original impact of this pandemic was felt by black and brown communities across the United States because of the social environmental conditions they, we have to live in. At the same time, now things have shifted because you have a whole bunch of people who are vaccine deniers and who are falling for all sorts of quack supposed cures for COVID like ivermectin coming from right-wing Republican um, you know, ideologues on Fox News, and now hospitals are filling up primarily with unvaccinated people. A large sect of those people are Republicans. On a lighter note, so in one of the chapters you put, uh, so, you know, we whenever, whenever we do the census, we have to put down what race we are. Um, on applications, and I ask this all the time, and nobody can give me an answer. <laughs> but, you know, now they have it set up where it's like, are you Hispanic? Yes. And then you go to race, and then, you, and then it gives you all these races, which I don't associate with. So then I check other. <laughs> In your book, you put the census races and a description for each race. And now I know apparently I'm supposed to be checking Native American. <laughs> and I probably got an answer to that question. Oh. So I appreciate that list because no one has ever been able to answer that for me. Yeah. And it, 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 well, one of the things is I find so sort of fascinating about this is that, yeah, we, we, you know, we, not just in the census, but everywhere, you know, it's federally mandated that we collect data by race and ethnicity. And I actually think that's a pretty good thing. A lot of countries don't do that. And if you don't do that, for example, in France, then you can't track inequalities. And because at least we do that, do that probably don't do it well. If we did it better, we would probably find even more glaring inequalities. But at least because we do that, we can get at, you know, for example, understanding that COVID had a extreme racial dimension to it. Um, but, you know, part of the problem is that we still cannot, you know, we still don't have an adequate definition of what race is, an adequate social definition, one that will work kind of across time and space. And so the office, the race definitions are based on uh, Directive 15 of the Office of Management and Budget. And the little line that is in small print, you know, is this is neither scientific nor anthropological. 
which raises the big question why we have government policies based on things that are neither scientific or anthropological. I wanted to ask about your um, some of your current work and anything that we can look forward to seeing from you too. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, as a scientist, I'm always working. So um, I publish research papers in microbial evolution on a regular basis. Obviously, that's not for the general public. But my uh, biopic work, um, A Voice in the Wilderness, a pioneering biologist explains how evolution can help us solve our biggest problems, is going to be published by Basic Books in the fall of 2022. Um, it talks about how I got interested in the science that I do, and, and it talks about, for example, how I began uh, down the road of fighting you know, structural racism in this country. So I hope it will be of interest to your listeners when it comes out in the fall. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to now write some shorter pieces. Um, I did have a piece out, oh, March of... 21 in Sapiens, uh, which is an online journal of the Winogrand Foundation for Anthropological Research. And in fact, I'm pretty sure Joe and I are going to do a small, you know, kind of a little piece on our book with them. Um, One of the things I'm really excited about is I've started working with UNESCO on um, race questions around race and racism and UNESCO has a long record of um, working on questions around race and not a very famous 1950 scientific statement came out from UNESCO after the horrors of the Holocaust in World War II. Um, But they've kind of backed off of the question of race, which is intimately connected to racism. Um, And so I'm working with them. And one of the things I like about it is that I think the United States has so obviously so many issues that are wound from enslavement on around in colonization, around race and racism that I think looking at it internationally and getting other countries involved in anti-racism efforts is, I think, really important. So um, I'm looking forward to continuing that work with them. Uh, I know we, I'm I'm assuming Les also um, got your book off of Amazon. We can get it on Kindle. Uh, Is there any other other, um, places that our listeners can purchase your book? I was absolutely surprised to find out that Target is selling our book. Really? Yeah. That's and great. Barnes yeah. & Noble as well. So some of the big bookstores are are helping to put out the word. And and local too. I mean, I'm finding the book is in all of my local bookshops and so it it um has made a number of and it's surprisingly because it was only published on December 7th, you know, it's made a number of kind of best nonfiction books of the year, including Amazon giving it an editor's choice designation, one of a, not a, a lot of books. And so um, I think it's being picked up a lot by independent bookstores. And I also would recommend going directly to Columbia University Press um, to order the book. 
Um, I think it's okay to say that I think if you put, I think it's CUP20, um, you can get 20% off. Once again, everyone, we are here with Dr. Joseph Graves and Dr. Alan Goodman discussing their book, Racism, Not Race, Answers to Frequently Asked Questions. Thank you two again for joining us on the show. We greatly appreciate your time. Once again, thank you for having us. Thank Les and Ashley. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And I look forward to you, to reading more from you two, even if it's not together. <laughs> well, I actually hope we don't have to write this book again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully once is enough, right? Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.